Hello, and welcome to What on Earth, the podcast of the Environmental Investigation Agency, or EIA. I'm Paul Newman, EIA's Press and Communications Officer, and today we're going to be taking a look at the growing plastic pollution crisis impacting on our oceans and the wider environment. Joining me is Tim Grabale, a senior lawyer working on our climate and ocean campaigns, and he's going to be talking about the scale and nature of the problem and why EIA believes the world urgently needs an international convention on plastic pollution. Tim. Welcome, and thanks for taking the time to share your thoughts with us. My pleasure. Okay, before we get to why we need a global convention on plastic pollution, perhaps you can give us an idea of the scale of the problem. Certainly. Well, when thinking about the scale of the problem, I think the numbers speak for themselves. So I'm going to run through a few for you now. We, humanity, produce approximately 275 million tons of plastic waste per year. Very little of that is recycled. Now, up to 12 million tons end up in the oceans every year, and the rest stays on land. We recently saw a study come out that looked at microplastic particles, and they may already outnumber zooplankton in the ocean. Zooplankton being those that underpin marine life and regulate climate. And a famous uh, report uh, a couple years ago found that by 2050, there could very well be more plastic than fish in the ocean. So the numbers themselves are quite daunting. And then when you look at the sources, it also is quite daunting. So the sources of marine plastic pollution are numerous. You have stains such as single-use plastics, so bottles and caps, cutlery, uh, plates, uh, cups. You have sachets, packaging. You have fishing gear and ropes, electronics. You have agricultural waste. You have cigarette butts. So the sources of macroplastic pollution, that being plastic that enters the environment in a large form, are numerous. You also have what are called microplastics. Microplastics generally fall into three categories. You have those that are intentionally added, such as microbeads or slow-release fertilizers onto agricultural lands. You have those that result from wear and tear, such as tire dust and textiles. And then you have those that are mismanaged. You have plastic pellets, which are about the size of a lentil and uh, uh, are, are melted and molded into nearly every plastic product we use today. And those are spilt into the environment and lost throughout the supply chain. So what we have is we have some daunting numbers on one hand, and we have multiple sources. And so the scale of the problem is significant. Plastic pollution is not just a crisis of scale, though. It's a, it's a crisis of duration, too. Uh, what can you tell us about the lifestyle of plastics from, say, the extraction of the fossil resources needed to make them in the first place? So virtually all plastic comes from oil, gas, and coal. We do use some biomass, it's in very small amounts. Um, so by and large, plastic is a fossil fuel or a fossil. Uh, if you look at it from the oil perspective, right now we currently use about 12 million barrels per day to produce plastics. 12 million barrels per day. Now, it's, plastic is also becoming the fastest driver of oil demand. And it will be driving oil demand to the tune of one third by 2030 and one half by 2050. So in effect, when you see plastic out in the environment, just lying in the park, lying in the ocean, lying on the beach, I mean, that's a solid oil spill because it comes from oil, by and large. But we also have plastic being produced from natural gas. And natural gas, there's two types of components. There's the wet gas and the dry gas, and the wet gas is what we use to make plastics. The dry gas is methane. And so when we, uh, what we're seeing is a, a lot of natural gas exploitation for the purposes of trying to get the raw materials to create plastics, the wet gas. And that includes stains such as fracking. People are fracking for plastics. 
Uh, it's a highly problematic way of natural gas exploitation. Not only does it pollute uh, the aquifers and the waterways, but it's, uh, it's very heavy in, in, in greenhouse gas emissions. And then lastly, what we're seeing is an expansion of coal, coal exploitation for the purpose of producing plastics. So in effect, we have plastic coming from oil, gas, and coal. And at the extraction stage, we have a lot of greenhouse gas emissions, in particular methane. Now, methane is 86 times more potent than carbon dioxide over a 20-year time frame. 86 times more potent. Of the warming that we feel today, 25% of it is from methane. And so the oil, gas, and coal is contributing uh, significantly to the global warming we're feeling today. Uh, so yeah, it's a problem. And once it makes its way into the environment, it exists for centuries. If we, if we collect it and we don't recycle it, and let's say we incinerate it, then we're also creating another source of greenhouse gas emissions. In fact, when you think about incineration or, or the new age incinerators that they got today, I mean, that's a, in effect a fossil, fuel, a fossil fuel power plant. So it's highly problematic, and uh, there's, no way of, there's no way of getting around the fact that you know, it is a fossil fuel, and it's going to continue once pulled out of the ground to somehow impact the environment for a very long time. Yeah. Oh, one thing I was reading recently, um, the, uh, uh, the veracity of it, but it, it seems to be indicating that a lot of the big fossil fuel giants um, are actually looking to actively transition away um, from fossil fuels as fuel into producing them as plastics, as like a, a business plan for adapting to the future. So in a way, as we stamp down on the use of fossil fuels to improve our chances of combating climate change, and that looks like it's actually going to be counterbalanced by those very industries actually transitioning into using those very same fossil fuels for something else. Is, is that the case? Or that, is that, is that, problem? that is exactly correct. They are, uh, in effect, providing an alternative pathway to staying relevant uh, and cross-subsidizing as well. Because a lot of times when, you, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you're uh, exploiting these fossil resources to get what you need to make plastics, you have as a co-product or a, by a byproduct some other fossil fuel or aspect of the fossil fuel. So for example, in the case of, uh, of natural gas, you have methane and then you have the, the natural gas liquids. Now we use the natural gas liquids to make the plastics, but the methane is kind of there too as well. And that oftentimes, if it's not used, is vented. It always leaks whenever we're trying to get it out of the ground. And so you just have the emissions that are associated with it and you are in effect cross-subsidizing uh yeah the fossil fuel industry by and large we're basically stamping down <clears throat> on one form um and only to allow it to spring up in another just basically mushrooming elsewhere effectively if we, if we let that happen absolutely so so why do you think um obviously <laughs> i can guess why you think but <laughs> given the scale of the problem and the nature of it but why do you think we specifically need an international convention on plastic pollution to begin to address this um what, what could that do that say the current environmental laws we've got in place around the world not do themselves yeah it's a good question and it's one that we get often uh i i don't think you have to take my word for it um as an initial matter i mean we we have a in 2017 un environment produced a comprehensive report and there they looked at 18 international instruments and 36 regional instruments with an eye towards whether they were sufficient uh, to address the plastic pollution problem crisis that we have this UN Environment Report concluded, and I'll quote, but if my memory is imperfect, it will be a paraphrase, that the current governance strategies and approaches provide a fragmented approach, and they do not adequately address marine plastic pollution or microplastics. 
And so as a result, we are going to need something new, like a dedicated framework that is able to address plastic and all the nuances associated with addressing plastic, um, different and distinct from what exists today. But it also just makes sense. Uh, they, you know, they, they engage in a comprehensive analysis and, and me as a lawyer, I, I love that kind of stuff. But just thinking about it from a more of a layman's perspective about the nature of the problem and the nature of the solution. So the nature of the problem, the nature, the nature of the plastic pollution problem. Well, one, it exists in the environment for centuries. It is transboundary, which means it crosses borders. And one country's failure to act can impact another. Uh, the ocean is the ultimate sink. Virtually every, I would say every river and drain ends in the ocean. And so there it accumulates. And the ocean is a common, is a common uh, concern of humankind. The protection of the ocean is something that we all share together. And likewise, biodiversity is a common concern of mankind, of humankind, and it too is being affected. And so we have on the pl plastic pollution side, the nature of the problem, it's a global problem. And it's going to require a global solution. And what does that global solution look like? Well, first, we're going to have to uh, eliminate unnecessary and frivolous uses of plastic. Um, and then from there, we are going to consume a certain amount of plastic into the future. We're going to have to ensure that we have a circular economy for this plastic, that, that what we put in is captured and then put back in, is recycled and then put back into the system. So we have a circular economy, one that goes around, and one that's safe as well, one that's not plagued with additives or legacy additives that, you know, when they get recycled and get put back into use, cause harm to children, for example. So we're going to need a safe circular economy for plastic, which means we're going to have to address the full life cycle. That means we're going to have to get up the, uh, the upstream measures as well as the downstream measures. We're going to have to get uh, at production and design to ensure that products are designed to then be able to be cap collected and recycled. And then we're going to have to get at the downstream measures, which means we're going to have to create collection and recycling infrastructure. So given how, how, how interlinked the global economy is and how important plastic is within the global economy, this necessarily has to be achieved at the global level. And so the problem is global and the solution as well. So, so in a way, we're looking for something, <clears throat> I would guess, similar to the Montreal Protocol, uh, which was originally set up to tackle CFCs destroying the ozone layer, but has now been broadened in its scope to address greenhouse gases, um, because they do affect more than the people that produce them. They do. They are a global concern. They're not just something that any one country can fight in a fragmented um, or unjoined up manner. Is, is, is that the kind of um, the thinking when we're thinking about uh, a global treaty on plastic pollution? Well, the Montreal Protocol is, the, is largely considered the most successful environmental uh, agreement out there. And I think there's a lot to be, to be uh, borrowed from it in this context. But yeah, absolutely. It, it's, you, you, have these, uh, you have these externalities that impact everyone. And once that starts happening, and we all must act together to eliminate them, you immediately jump into, the, what, you immediately jump into something being needed at the global or international level. There's no way to, to slice or dice it. Plastic is very similar to ozone-depleting substances in the Montreal Protocol. It's also very similar to the problems that we're encountering with climate change in the sense that there are the sources are so varied and the, and, and, and the approaches um, are, are specific to the sources that you really need to get people together and start to approach it in a holistic, concerted manner. There can't be any free riders, for example, because otherwise nothing gets done.
So I, I guess in terms of you know, best practice, the Montreal Protocol effectively forms a sort of a, a loose br blueprint of, of how an international treaty for plastic might conceivably work without having to do all the legwork of devising one from scratch. Absolutely. I think a lot of the elements that we would like to see in a convention on plastic pollution uh, also exists at the Montreal Protocol. And Montreal Protocol also took a very upstream approach towards regulating uh, ozone-depleting substances in that they capped and phased down the production of the substances themselves. Now, this had all this downstream implications, right? So then people started uh, essentially recycling the old refrigerants and collecting it instead of spilling them into the atmosphere because the virgin, the new stuff that was on put, being put on the market was being uh, capped and, and decreased over time. That's something we'd like to see with plastics as well. It might be a, f a little ways down the road. Um, we certainly know, though, that if we're just producing all this virgin plastic and just throwing it onto the marketplace, that the waste management systems uh, around the world cannot handle it. And that's what we're seeing yeah. now. And so it spills over into the environment. I mean, without wishing to be a bit of a doomsayer, I can see what one area of objection to such a treaty might well be that, yeah, that there's a certain, um, should we say, um, popularity around the world with the idea of, of, of small government and you know, getting rid of big government, whatever that actually means, and the idea we don't want these overarching conventions telling us how to live. And a lot of critics of this might well say, you know, why do we need an international law, um, an illegal treaty to do with plastics? Why can't the sector making them be left to fix the problem on its own with a bit of a nudge and a, a bit of a direction from you know, regional governments? Is, is that remotely a credible position to take? My short answer would be no. But my longer, more developed answer would be, uh, I mean, first off, you know, industry, uh, the private sector, it's not a monolithic group. So while we welcome the efforts of certain companies, for every well-intentioned corporate actor, we have 10 indifferent ones. We have the free riders, we have the don't carers. And so in that context, what you need is to level the playing field through regulation. So we need to get everyone, we need to raise the bar. Um, this is particularly important when we're thinking about the solutions towards plastic and how we create a global economy. We need to have some sort of consensus around uh, the products that we make available using plastic, about the constituents in those products so that we can then recycle them and put them back into the economy. Th these, these are trade-offs, uh, negotiations and compromises that are made on a societal level. And these are necessarily the issues that need to be resolved by governments and not for-profit private actors. So that would be my longer version of the answer. Uh, it, 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 it's not going to happen by itself. Yeah, and we, we haven't really got the time, I guess, to simply wait for people to wake up in due course and figure, oh, we've got a bit of a problem here. Let's, uh, let's get ourselves together and think about addressing it in maybe 20, 30 years' time when yeah, we're getting old and retiring and our profits are made. We kind of need more of an imperative behind it now, yeah? Absolutely, we need to move. We need an imperative behind it now, and we just can't expect people to self-organize. There's too many economic interests for them to not to. Okay, um, one of the things I've noticed, you know, in my role as a press officer, um, I, I tend to spend a lot of time looking at uh, the media and papers and their coverage of this issue. Um, and it strikes me that the vast majority of the focus on plastic pollution that does get into the news. Um, it's always been about the oceans, you know, how it entangles and kills whales in abandoned fishing gear, um, how other marine mammals um, are basically being poisoned um, from the toxic microplastics which get into the food chain. Um, 
but you seldom see um, coverage, I suppose, of, of the, the issue from, if you like, a land-based perspective. And, and yet you clearly think that the solutions to the plastic problem um, in the ocean, particularly, uh, are to be found on dry land. Yes. Well, I mean, the, the, the figures uh, underscore this point. Uh, 80%, when you just look at it from a, a marine plastic pollution, a marine litter perspective, so the plastic that ends up in the ocean, 80% of that originates on land. We also know that over 90% of the plastic waste uh, pollution just stays on land, right? So this is just this is a little percentage. So 80% of uh, marine litter, marine plastic pollution ends up on, uh, sorry, originates from land. And then 20% originates from sea-based sources. So you can't just get at the 20% and ignore the 80%. That's not going to make any sense. And when you think about it, I mean, when you, you know, with the exception of fishing gear, when you think about plastic items we find on our beaches, these are the same plastic items that we find in our parks, in our streets, in our rivers, on our farmland. It's a, it's a land-based problem first and foremost. It doesn't mean that we exclude um, the contribution from sea-based sources, and it doesn't mean that we don't design approaches to reduce uh, sea-based sources, in particular fishing gear. It just means that we're not gonna get the issue focusing solely on sea-based sources. Yeah, I, I grew up in the, uh, on the coast in Norfolk, and. Uh, one of the things I learned from, as a kid is that the stuff you see at the, the high tide line, it's always stuff you would find in the litter bins or kicking around the streets when there's a bit of a wind up, you know? It's plastic bottles, it's chunks of um, polystyrene food container and stuff. And that's what would be basically, you'd be, you know, beach combing for, for garbage like that as opposed to anything else you'd actually be looking for. All drains and okay, rivers so run it, to the ocean, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> So, so what are the next steps towards making this a reality? So, to actually yeah, achieving a convention on plastic pollution and, 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 and obviously I would imagine doing it within a, sh a relatively short time frame. Well, we're close. Um, that doesn't mean we're there, but it certainly means we're close. So since the first UNEA session, the UNEA being the United Nations Environment Assembly, there have been a drumbeat of resolutions that have come out. And uh, in 2017, UNEA, established an expert group specifically to look at whether the, an international response was required. So that expert group met three times over the course of the next year and a half. And then in 2019, its mandate was extended. It's met once um, and was scheduled to meet twice, but we now have had some complications with the, the recent pandemic. With that yeah. being said, this expert group is building towards providing recommendations towards the fifth session of the United Nations Environmental Assembly, which is scheduled to take place in February. So we're gonna be making hopefully a decision in 2021 on whether we should initiate negotiations on a new global agreement. Now that could take many forms. It could be a working group. It can be an international negotiating committee, but ultimately we'd like to see some progress on that front. Now, there are a lot of different regions around the world that are starting to call for a global agreement. Uh, we had the Nordic Ministerial Declaration in 2019, in which the Nordic countries supported a global agreement. We have the Caribbean Community's St. John Declaration that same year, in which the Caribbean uh, uh, the governments supported uh, or called for a global agreement. We had the African Ministers of the Environment do so in South Africa in what's called the Durban Declaration. So all this came out in 2019. So we're starting to see yeah, regions, uh, entire regions call for this. Uh, 2020 started off with the Bain. We had the European Commission pledge to lead efforts on a global agreement. Um, and so we're, 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 we're starting to see 
a cacophony turned into a harmony, a, a, a chorus of calls for a global agreement, and we're hoping that it, 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 it leads to some meaningful progress uh, next year. Excellent. So, Tim, thank you very much indeed for joining us today, and uh, best of luck with the campaign as it goes. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please watch this space for future episodes. Uh, you can check out our website at eia-international.org to find out more about our work. Thanks for joining us, and wherever you are, stay safe out there.